country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Gemma Purdy and I'm from the Australia Indonesia Centre. For the past two months, the pandemic crisis in Indonesia has escalated with numbers of new cases and deaths from the virus reaching record numbers week after week. In the absence of serious lockdowns, government efforts to encourage the public to comply with social distancing and masking advice has not been as effective as it should. Epidemiologist Diki Buniman from Griffith University recently warned, the worst is yet to come. Indonesia's pandemic is actually speeding up. On January 13, President Joko Widodo received the first dose of the CoronaVac vaccine. The Chinese vaccine underwent phase three trials in Indonesia in late 2020. Developed by Sinopharm, the vaccine trials and rollout internationally have been shrouded in some controversy and its reception in Indonesia so far, mixed. As the government embarks on one of the largest vaccination programs in its history, what are the challenges ahead? Is it taking the right approach? And will the vaccine do its job and arrest the pandemic in Indonesia? To shed light on these questions and more, I'm joined by Dr. Inez Atmosukato, a molecular biologist from the John Curtin School of Medical Research at the ANU's College of Health and Medicine. Inez is CEO of Lipotech Proprietary Limited, which develops vaccines and cancer treatments. And she was previously project leader at the Research Center for Biotechnology at the Indonesian Institute of Science. Hello, Inez. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Inez, can you start by giving us an update on the pandemic in Indonesia? What are the current trends for numbers of cases and deaths and how is the health system currently responding? Okay, unfortunately, the trends are going up. So we've recently registered several days of record numbers of positive case and of record numbers of death. And in fact, a few days ago, I think we registered over 14,000 positive cases. So that's certainly showing that the trends are up despite there being a, a sort of a lockdown in place. It's, it's, it's a very modest and weak lockdown. So the seven-day rolling average is a about 11,000 cases, which is really concerning. And the thing is, like, we know that the reporting is delayed. So what we're seeing now is probably reflecting the situation a few days ago or even weeks ago. And worst of all is that we know that there is discrepancies between what is reported by the different provinces and what's reported by nationally. So, for example, a few days ago, uh, the governor of West Java actually reported that 10,000 positive cases from West Java had not actually been reported uh, in the national numbers, right? So, and we don't know what happens in other provinces. So I think obviously the, the situation is really dire and the health system is really being stretched to the seam, I think. I've seen reports in the media of the ICUs being full. And I think the saddest thing of all was a report of a person dying in a car after being turned away from 10 hospitals. Uh, so that gives you an idea of what's happening. Mm, I also read that report. Jakarta seems to be quite an intense area for this increase, isn't it? 
that's that's correct. Uh, I think the situation is probably similar in Surabaya as well. I've seen numbers in Surabaya and going up, and I think most recently the numbers in Bali have also been a little bit concerning. So, I mean, it, it, it's not surprising that the larger cities are the ones that are having the biggest problem. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned the delayed reporting, also the discrepancies in reporting. What about the testing rates? Yeah, I mean, testing has always been an issue. It was an issue when the pandemic started at the beginning of the last year, and it continues to be an issue. And, and the fact that our positive rates are in the 20s to I think there's been days where they were in the 30s uh, really shows you that we are not testing enough. So, I mean, what we're seeing is really probably just the tip of the iceberg early in the pandemic. You were one of the many scientists, I think, at the time who were really critical of the government's slow response to the pandemic as it was unfolding. Just briefly, can you tell us what, what were the main issues that you saw as hampering the response? And do you think that improvements have been made in the past, you know, nine months? So initially, I think scientists were worried about the testing, right? So it took a long time to report the first case. And I think, you know, scientists in Indonesia and overseas were really dubious of the fact that, you know, by April or I think it was March, you know, there were no reports. And I think part of the issue, and I think the, the first big issue that we had was that initially the testing was only allowed to be conducted by um, Lidbang Case, which is the, um, the essentially the laboratories of the health department. So it was centralized in one place in Jakarta. Um, so how were you going to pick up, you know, potential positive cases in Bali? And, and we knew that there were direct flights from Wuhan to Bali, for example. So, you know, we knew that that was a problem. So the fact that there was so much restriction and, I guess, opacity around the testing and how it was being set up and, you know, what reagents and were. And it, you might remember that early on last year, the USA CDC, you know, had issues with some of the reagents, the primers that are used in these PCR tests. And, you know, we were wondering whether we were receiving those in Indonesia. There were so many questions which were never answered, right? So, I mean, we're kind of like, you know, talking to the vacuum because uh, scientists were putting out all these questions and we really never never had any, any answers. So that was, I guess that was one of the initially probably the biggest issue that we had. And then it was the constant downplaying of the disease and the pandemic itself by the government. So we know that if you downplay the situation, people are not going to be taking that seriously. So everything that was in the media was really pointing to the fact that that the government was trying to downplay the situation. They were trying, in fact, I mean, you might remember that they were trying to pay influencers to promote, you know, people coming to visit Indonesia and at a time when other countries were closing down the borders. Another thing, there was unscientific discourse around the disease, you know, about the fact that because we have a warm climate and it's humid, we will be protected. And then it was like, oh, we're, we're genetically protected because, you know, there was so many, I mean, there was, there was just too many things to kind of list out. For me, the biggest issue has been the communication, because if the government failed to communicate the seriousness of a situation, then how do you expect people to take this seriously? So, so 
I mean, you ask whether things have gone better. I think to some degree they have gone a little bit better since the change at the helm of health ministry. So we know that um, at the end of last year, a new health minister was put in place. Pa Budi was involved in discussion with scientists even before then. So when he was deputy minister for government owned enterprises, Pa Budi had actually engaged with scientists from probably early May and he had been put in charge of seeking access to vaccines and because he's not a he's not a doctor and he's not a biological scientist he actually engaged in discussion and we had um, many kind of zoom meetings where he was listening to scientists to try and understand disease and the vaccine so yes i think there is a little bit of improvement because at least the health minister is visible right because i mean one of the biggest things last year was that we had an invisible health minister but i think there still continues to be confusing messaging so it is getting better but i think it's still mixed really and the testing rates are still in the 20s 30s right and numbers are still going of course no one expected that there would be an instant improvement right I mean you can't just like make it go away just because you've got a new health minister uh, for as long as it's not a coordinated messaging from all the different ministries and from the top then it's I think it's still going to be confusing and as we see you know, malls are still open. I mean, you've got a lockdown, but malls are still open and you can still eat there. Yeah. Yeah. So from the top down, there's still this fine balance that they're trying to maintain between the public health crisis and the economic crisis. And they're trying to, yeah, appease all sides. But as you say, it does sound positive that the new minister listens to scientists and listens to the experts. And that's a trend that has improved, which is great. So bring us now to the vaccine, which only in the last fortnight has started to roll out in Indonesia, the Sinovac vaccine. But before you tell us a little bit more about the vaccine in particular, in general, how do Indonesians view vaccinations? What's their take up, for example? Is there widespread adoption of existing vaccines? So, yeah, so the government has this childhood vaccine immunization program, and there's a number of vaccines that our kids get, right? Um, you know, starting from, I think, the first week in the hospital. And Indonesia has this network of puskesmas and, you know, where that happens. So, I think. There is good uptake of some vaccines and, and I guess that's good because that means that, you know, there, there's knowledge of that. There has been controversies around certain vaccines, especially whether they were halal. So that's hampered and that's probably, you know, been an issue in the, in more recently with the MMR vaccine not being halal. I think that was probably in the last few years. And that I think has fueled some vaccine hesitancy in Indonesia. And I guess because Indonesians are so well connected by social media, a lot of information has been disseminated and a lot of really bad information is is making around. Okay, so there's some hesitancy, but an important thing about this vaccine is that it has been declared halal, which was very important, wasn't it, in terms of building that trust. So tell us about this collaboration with the Chinese company to create Sinovac. How did that come about? And, you know, has there been long-term collaboration with Chinese pharmaceuticals? 
Yes, no. So it's not exactly in collaboration in that Biopharma wasn't involved in developing the vaccine, right? What it is, is more like cooperation between two companies. And in some ways, it's lucky that we have in Indonesia, Biopharma, which is the largest vaccine manufacturer in Southeast Asia, for sure. And it's it's a very prominent member of the developing countries network of vaccine manufacturers. And that meant that Biopharma had connections with other vaccine companies around the world and it was able to engage with Sinovac to get access to to this vaccine. So what is happening, my understanding, is that Sinovac produces the bulk of the vaccines and this gets sent to Indonesia where Biopharma can do the fill and finish. So that's fancy, fancy word for saying putting it in vials. And that's the way of being able to get access to the product rapidly and to also vial it in ways that is, um, you know, because you can vial vaccine as in one dose per vial or in multiple dose per vial. So it, it can adjust it to the needs of Indonesia. So that's the sort of cooperation that Biopharma has with Sinovac. And, and, you know, because of this existing, and I'm assuming, and I don't know that, but I'm assuming that Biopharma already had a relationship with the company, you know, because they're part of this network of vaccine manufacturers. And therefore, that was kind of lucky for Indonesia because Biopharma was able to step in very quickly to get access to this vaccine. Yeah, and, and it was also a site for trialling the vaccine, wasn't it, in the that, That's correct. So Indonesia was a site for the conduct of a phase three trial. So that, that's the trials where you actually prove that the vaccine works. Um, it was a modest phase three trial because there were only 1,600 uh, participants in the trial. Compare that to, say, Brazil, where they had 13,000 or 14,000, or Turkey, where they had about 7,000. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it was a smallish trial conducted in Indonesia. But I think the fact that the product was trial in Indonesia was also important to actually make sure that there was trust in the product. Right. Right. So yeah. that I think it was a very smart, that was a very smart way of approaching things. Mm-hmm. And it's also a good place to trial a vaccine, isn't isn't it, when there is a lot of virus in the community? Yes. You, you, I mean, if you want to do a phase three trial, you want to do it where things are really bad, right? So that's, that's also why the companies that were doing the trials in the US, Moderna and Pfizer, were able to get the results so fast because, you know, things were so bad in the US that it didn't take long to get enough events in the trial. To be honest, when, when the trial was first... Um, was first mentioned in Indonesia, the numbers weren't that bad in Bandung. So, I mean, I personally was wondering, well, how long is it going to take to actually get the results? Because things were not that bad back in May or June when they actually were started talking about the trial. So I guess in some ways, because things got bad towards the end of the year, you know, yeah. For the science, it got good. It did for the science, it got good. It, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing to say, but yes. Um, yes. So, that, I mean, choosing where you do, I mean, and that's why, you know, I mean, some people, including Indonesia, were saying, oh, well, you know, why are the Chinese, why is the Chinese company doing the trials outside of China? Why is that, why we don't want to be the guinea pigs, right? Yeah. But the reason they have to do it outside of China is because they don't have cases in China or not enough to be able to be the site of a a phase three trial, yeah. 
So tell us about the vaccine itself. What type of vaccine is it? How does it work? I mean, we're lay people here, Ines, so <laughs> do I, your best. Yeah. Do my best. Okay, so the Sinovac vaccine, which is called Coronavac, is what you call an inactivated vaccine. So it's one of the most traditional trialed known way of making a vaccine, which is in lay terms, uh, you take the virus, you grow it up in, in vessels, you know, using surrogate cells, and you make a bucket load of virus, and then you kill it using a chemical, right? And that that's why it's inactivated, because you essentially killed the virus, and then that's purified and bound. So it's a very, very, I guess, crude way of making vaccines, but that's how we've made vaccines for for decades, right? That's how your polio vaccines and existing a lot of existing vaccines are made. So, so that's it's a very traditional way of making vaccines, and that means that a vaccine ha- contains all the different bits that come in a virus, as opposed to you know we would have heard here like the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer vaccines, which really only present one part of the virus to the immune system. They only present that spike protein we've all seen it we all know about viruses right so that spike protein is what's in you know presented in the more modern vaccines right to kind of focus the um, immune response towards that so i guess in these traditional vaccines you have the possibility of generating a lot of different type of antibodies and therefore you might not get a huge amount of antibody against just one thing so it's kind of a balance and i might explain as well why the modern vaccines have this like amazing neutralization title right this very right the higher efficacy uh, yes yes right yeah i was going to ask yeah it's part of it okay so yes so we did see that this vaccine was trialed, as you mentioned, in Indonesia, Brazil, Turkey, where it had different numbers trialing, but there were also quite different numbers in terms of its efficacy. In Brazil, I think now they're reporting it was just over 50%. Is that right? And so why do you think there were different rates and does it really matter? You know, if they're all over 50, does it really matter? I mean, we're confused. I don't know. So I can't imagine, you know, like people looking, it's like, what is it? Is it 50? Is it 78? So it's really hard because it all depends. And like, this is scientists speaking. It all depends on the definitions, right? For a case in a trial. So in the Brazil, we've seen a lot more data in the, in the last couple of days. And what they say, it's 50% for mild symptoms, but it's 78 for the more moderate and it's 100% against severe disease. What does it mean? So that means it completely protects you from getting very, very ill and ending up in hospital, right? But only 78% protection against the more moderate. So uh, 50% against mild symptoms. So when the, you know, it doesn't stop you. It doesn't stop you from having those mild symptoms. But, I mean, I'd rather have those mild symptoms than end up in hospital, right? So going back to the to your original question, does it matter at this stage in a place like Indonesia where the disease is rampant? I think because the WHO has already set the bar, the WHO said, you know, 50% or more. And in Indonesia, I mean, it, I think the efficacy was about 65%. Then I think, you know, let's get it out. Let's get it out as fast as we can. And let's try and get it out before more variants 
you know, a payer because we're starting to see reports of all these new variants and discussions about whether or not the vaccines are going to be protecting us. So it's kind of a race, right? So, yeah, let's get them a out. Race. Yeah, good. I hear you. So how is the government planning to do that in its, what are its aims for its program and is it on the right track? So the government has, again, a very confusing messaging around that. In the previous, you know, pre last year, under the previous, when the uh, previous health minister, it was, you know, we're going to focus on the working age people, so 18 to 59 years old. And they've set a very complex priority hierarchy, right? Like I can't even remember how many, but, you know, obviously like everywhere else, like first priority is the health care workers, but then kind of it got really complicated. You know, you had the police and then you had like, you know, people of, different it's really complicated and i think what we've learned from other countries which are now undergoing this massive vaccination problem is when if this priority listing is so complicated it's gonna really impede the the rollout right because if you withhold a vaccine because you don't have enough people that fit the priority is that really useful right so i'm hoping that they're learning from what's happening in other countries um at the moment we have to realize that the coronavac vaccine like the sinovac vaccine is only allowed by badan pom so our local authorities to be used in 18 to 59 so that's why, at, as it stands, the vaccine is not rolled out to the elderly. But I know that there's a lot of discourse, like discussions around this. And, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, it's because the data, you know, the clinical trial data that we have is only for that age group. You can be very cautious and, and say, well, we don't know whether it's going to work in, in older people. Uh, and it might not work as well as, say, the Pfizer vaccine in older people because it's not as potent a vaccine, right? And we know that what happens with older people is that your immune system kind of weakens a bit. So you need a bit of a kind of like a bigger shock to actually get a response. And that's why the, the mRNA vaccines have been really good. It's because they work quite well in, uh, in the elderly. Having said that, the government is seeking access to the Pfizer vaccine. And some of the figures I've seen suggest that they've got an agreement in place. I don't know whether it's been signed, but they've um, negotiated an agreement for supply in Q2. So that means around April. And what I'm hoping is that the government will prioritize the use of those vaccines for the elderly. Right, and the vulnerable. those And the vulnerable, exactly, yeah. Uh, comorbidities, because we have seen that, the you know, we look at the average age of those who have died of coronavirus in Indonesia, it is much younger than, say, obviously in the developed countries like Australia. So, yeah, you can imagine there are many people in their 60s who would be very vulnerable. Yeah. I wonder whether that's a reflection of the general health of people in Indonesia because, yeah, it's 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 interesting really to see how the statistics are a little bit different, um, but yeah. that's for a different, Indeed. <laughs> a different discussion. Indeed. So, okay, so what about the target? Do you think it's realistic, the, the rollout, the volume? Is it ambitious? Can they achieve it? It's really ambitious. I mean, you know, because most of the vaccines that are out there need two doses, right? And Indonesia set a target of vaccinating 70% of its population, so 180 million, roughly, 
right? So that means 360 million doses need to be administered. And I think the, I mean, I've seen reports where the health minister suggested a 15 months time frame, but Jokowi said he wants it done in eight months. I don't think that Jokowi actually realizes how difficult it is to do that. But even with, you know, the, the relatively more modest, but still very long time frame of 15 months, I mean, it'd be, you know, administering 800,000 doses a day, uh, which is a lot, right? And being able to deliver this vaccine in places that are remote as well uh, and we've seen just this week with so many other things happening we've had landslide we had volcanoes we had earthquakes there's there's a lot of challenges uh, to do that plus we have to do this with a pandemic raging so your doctors are still pretty busy at the moment and we need to also roll out this vaccine so look i mean i'm, I'm really worried i haven't really seen the grand master plan so that's a little bit concerning i mean i'm sure that they're working on it but i mean i guess to just to give you a an idea the first vaccine was administered over a week ago it was eight days ago right jokowi on on wednesday last week had his first dose there's 1.6 million healthcare workers that are in the category of healthcare workers. And, you know, that means about 3.2 million doses. My understanding is, uh, you know, as of like yesterday, only 3% of that target was, let me say, I haven't seen the numbers. The, I'm, I'm to, I've been told, I'm actually, I've been told that by the minister himself that there's, there'll be a dashboard, a website where we can see the rollout real time. That website doesn't seem to be active yet. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been asking around and what I hear is about 3%. So, I mean, that's not a lot. Like, it's 45 Well, I mean, but in as you know, we're, we're saying we're talking about the Indonesian case, but we know that in the UK, we know that in the US, where they have far more resources at their disposal, they too have struggled to roll it out to reach the targets that they set for themselves. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah, not surprised. I mean, this is because this is in, and, and, and this would be the easiest group to target, right? Because it's the doctors, you know, like you kind of know where they are right in the there. hospitals. They, there'll be a good database of all the doctors so you know how to reach them. But I've heard, for example, of doctors trying to, because you've got to register yourself or, you know, confirm or something and the websites are clunky and don't work and people are being turned away or, you know, they denied and, and it's not quite clear. So... I think there's a lot of um, of of teething happening at the moment. Yeah. So, but so far it will be it will be rolled out by the Ministry for Health. Is yes. That, yes, they'll yes. be responsible for it. What about this discussion, which is you know because in way it's in response to these difficulties about commercializing the vaccine, having private companies in come in to do the job. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, that's that's something that we. They may been, be far more efficient. They may be far more efficient. We've been discussing this. We, you know, we're kind of part of a few groups, and we've been discussing this ad nauseum. Really, the problem is as soon as you commercialize this, or you know, pay for access, 
you know, it's not going to be equitable. So that means that a rich person in Jakarta can get vaccinated ahead of a doctor probably in Kupang. It's really hard when you, you know, because, I mean, initially you will remember that they initially, you know, probably a few months ago, it was going to be this mixed approach. And I was like, well, how are you going to control this? I think because this is a public health issue, it needs to be coordinated because if we're going to have this mixed delivery, how are we going to keep track of it, right? How are you going to keep track of all that? I understand the argument for involving parties that might be able to do this more efficiently. I just I don't know how you can do that and make sure that the vaccine ends up in the arms of the right people first. It's, 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 a, it's kind of an ethical one, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? I mean, there is the, uh, you know, efficiency thing with the logistics. There is also, I guess, one option, another option, which is that the government work with the private sector somehow and do it together. Quite. And I think you're right. That, that might be the best approach because, yes, for me, it's really an ethical issue. A possible way that I can see is once you've reached your first layer of priority, once the doctors have been vaccinated, once all the doctors that want to get it, I have been vaccinated and the vulnerable have been vaccinated, then maybe go for it, kind of get the coverage, right? Mm -hmm. But we can't talk about pay for access before the top priority groups have been uh, have been vaccinated. I think that's my opinion and, and, and it's clearly an ethical one. But, but it's a public health one too because, you know, yeah. if, you, if you don't protect the doctors, yeah, and we know, Inez, that Indonesia's doctors and nurses have been hit incredibly hard and we know the death rates are far higher than most places mm. in the world. That's right. And to be honest, I've lost track of the number. I used to keep an eye on that number, but it's above 500. It, it's really, really, really worrying. Um, yeah, and there aren't enough doctors and there aren't enough nurses as it is. Exactly, to start with. Essentially, every doctor that we've lost is tens of thousands of people not having access to healthcare. So this comes to that question again that you've talked about a little bit about the role of communications here. Government have flip-flopped. In the beginning, testing was an open market. We heard many stories of people having to pay a lot of money for testing, and that meant that it was out of the reach of most Indonesians, so they were not tested, so they were infected and they didn't know it, etc. And then Jokowi puts a cap on, on the price of the testing to try to regulate it. And then this, the flip-flopping on this issue too. So there's a lack of coordination, isn't there, from the top? Yeah, and well, it's mostly mixed messaging from the top. So yes, you you spoke about um, the access to testing, and and to be honest, it's yes, there's been attempts to regulate it, but it's still you know there's still um it's 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 yes. still expensive. Yeah, still something around ninety Australian dollars that I, that I've heard of. Just imagine in Australia, obviously. It's for free. We can go as many times as we like or need to. $90, that would be at the low end of the cost. My my mom had to get tested. We paid three times that cost. So, yeah, so it's still it's, it's still an issue. And, and the biggest issue is the length of time it takes to get your result back. And the thing is we know, you know unless you get your result within a day or two, it's, it's kind of pointless because unless people have been very, very rigorous about staying home until they get the results of the test, which I know they haven't, then, you know, if it takes four days, then 
it's kind of a bit too late because people have still had the chances to infect other people. So yeah, the mm-hmm. testing, exactly, that shows the issue when we have this commercial aspect involved in, in, in rolling out these, what should be services provided by the government for the benefit of everybody because this is a public health emergency. Yeah. And so you, like other scientists, have been talking about the the fact that vaccine is not the be all and end all, that people need to remember the mask, the social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. How is that looking in Indonesia? Are people abiding by those? Yeah, it's funny because you say that. Yeah, I've been I've been saying that, which is kind of ironic because my day-to-day job is to develop vaccines. So, I mean, normally I sell the idea of vaccines, but as you say, I've I've been trying to, you know, remind people that, well, as we spoke uh, before, it's going to take months to vaccinate the majority of the population in Indonesia. Until everybody that needs to get the vaccine has had the vaccines, we're not really out of the woods, right? And, and the second thing is that these clinical trials are not designed to confirm that the vaccines prevents transmission. The trials just tell you that the vaccines prevent disease, right? And until we have more information, we don't know that vaccinated people that don't seem to have serious symptoms are still not able to transmit the virus. So the the, the vaccine will protect you because you're not going to get severe symptoms, but it might not protect, you know, grandma if she's not vaccinated for example. So I've been trying and a lot of scientists have been trying to remind people this is not a silver bullet. It is only the fourth layer or whatever, you know, that in in a public health approach that we still need to maintain, you know, this M as they call it in Indonesia, wearing your masks and um, and everything. And but then, like you know, but then you you sort of have the groups that that actually jump on that and say, well, if the vaccine doesn't protect us. Right, and if we still have to wear our masks, why should we get vaccinated? So it's it's a really difficult conversation to have, mm. um, and it's a very difficult messaging. And I don't think the government has actually done enough messaging, and that was clearly shown. I don't know if you followed the whole thing, but you know, on day one, Jokowi got vaccinated, and so did one of these you know young artists who was selected because he's an Indian influencer right so as part of this whole campaign they had these influencers being vaccinated as well and what did we say like that evening the person who shall rename nameless in this discussion was at a party unmasked right so again you would have hoped that that person would have been educated right mm-hmm. before he received the vaccine and that he would be then able to actually pass that information to his millions of followers well i don't know if it happened but that's another missed opportunity right so if you're going to select people because they have influence you need to to actually give them the ammunition and the information that you want them to pass on right that's the whole point of using influencers otherwise why why would you do that yeah just don't and assume that they know what to do yes i did see that and we could talk for a long time about all of the the other little challenges one of them being that uh, the doctor who gave Jokowi the vaccination had to go on national television to dismiss the rumours that he'd actually injected him with a vitamin. Yeah, no, I mean... Vitamins the, the, rather than the vaccine. 
yeah, I actually feel sorry for the poor doctor that uh, did the did the vaccination on uh, on live TV. Yeah, no, I mean the amount of analysis of that two seconds that like the poor doctor put the syringe in and the angle that he used that, and I mean, this, I mean, I wish there was that that level of discussion about like the important things, you know, about avoiding crowded space, making sure that you have ventilation, using masks. If we actually had this amount of interest in these sort of discussions, we probably would be in a better place. That's all the more reason why it's important that we hear from scientists like you. So thank you so much for giving us your time. And yeah, we really appreciate it. So all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great questions. And um, hopefully people will listen to this. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll get it out there. Thanks, Inez. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. That was Dr. Inez Admonsukato from the ANU's College of Health and Medicine. Talking Indonesia will return on the 11th of February, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.